This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network, the home of great music podcasts. Visit us at fmpods.com. You are listening to the Dylan Ponce Podcast. Welcome to another edition of What Is It About Bob Dylan? I am with Elizabeth Cantalamessa. Uh, she is a PhD candidate at the University of Miami. She earned her BA and MA in philosophy at the University of Wyoming, and her research interests include the intersection of social philosophy, the philosophy of language, aesthetics, meta-metaphysics, and meta-philosophy, just some light pursuits. Her <laughs> dissertation <laughs> introduces a model of humor as a tool for manipulating social norms. She's an emerging scholar with the Mark Twain Circle of America and was a Quarry Fellow, Quarry Farm Fellow. That's easy for me to say. Mm -hmm. Uh, Her research focuses on Twain's linguistic pluralism and the social function of non-factual forms of speech, such as humbug, irony, and tall tales. She has a substack called Secondhand Thoughts, where she, and I quote, publishes meandering essays about random stuff. Uh, I love that. And I just subscribed and it's delightful. So I recommend it to everyone listening. She's been a guest on the Philosopher's Nest podcast, and she gave a brilliant presentation entitled Art is a Disagreement, Authorship and Responsibility in the Philosophy of Modern Song at the World of Bob Dylan Conference in Tulsa this past May. Uh, We are both currently in Houston, but uh, we found it easier to meet via Zoom rather than in person because it is unbearable to leave the house in Mm -hmm. temperatures above 100 degrees. And anywhere in Houston is about an hour from any other place in Houston because of the traffic. So welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for having me. I'm honored and delighted to be here. (laughs) I am so glad to talk with you and to finally meet you. We were in Tulsa together, but we didn't get a chance to meet. Uh, So it's nice to to finally meet you and hopefully we'll get to hook up sometime in Houston. So so let's jump right in. What is it about Bob Dylan? (laughs) I wish I knew. (laughs) No, but um, I think for me, the answer actually comes down to what we're doing right now, which is the community that has sort of grown around Dylan and Dylan's work, in particular, uh, the sort of intellectual and academic and the fan communities that are interested in his work. So I've, for me, that has been the most rewarding aspect uh, is getting to know all these other people who have the same taste as me, the same interests, who love Dylan as much as I do, as well as how his work introduces me to variety of other things, historical references, intertextuality, questions about, you know, uh, authorship and originality, um, things that I then go on to explore in my um, academic research. But uh, I wish I knew at the same time that the it's, it's that very question, I think that I, I enjoy the most that um, enables me to yeah have these connections and relationships with people. Um, I've created these friendships, uh, people I see every year on tour and the like. So um, it's not so much maybe Bob Dylan for me, but the people that love Bob Dylan as well. And do yeah. you, that's a, thank you. That's a fantastic answer. Do you think that that community, um, you know, we had, we noticed Laura, Laura Tentrip and I made a comment, we had a conversation in Tulsa, which I wish you were a part of, that there's so much positivity in that community. Do you find that? And that's, I mean, just does that encourage you to to travel on with him? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And 
uh, and everyone's sort of self-aware too. Like, you know, my family doesn't, they're not into Dylan. So they always, they've learned to accept my fanaticism, I think more and embrace it, not embrace it so much, but they accept it at least. They don't question it as much as they used to. Whereas when I'm around other, you know, Bobcats and the like, or when I was at the conference, I just felt, you know, uh, accepted in this way <laughs> uh, where I, we didn't have to justify and defend why we were doing this. It's everybody already sort of take, that takes it for granted so much, but we're already all invested and committed uh, to his work and, and what he does being valuable. And so it's just nice to be able to uh, talk to other people who are have the same background and the same interest in his work and, mm -hmm. and use it to explore these further questions. I agree with you that there are people that if when you're out in the world, <laughs> shall I say, people who are not fanatics, they, you know, have that questioning look or like, what, like, what is it about like Bob Dylan, that guy from the 60s or the guy from the Pepsi commercial or whatever it is that they have an idea of Bob Dylan being, they just see it in very superficially in, in how he's represented in pop culture, which is an important part of the conversation, but it's not, it's just one little bit of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think in many ways, you can kind of stifle the conversation. Like, I've, I've joked before that one of the worst questions I can get from someone is like, what's your favorite album? You know, oh, and it's like, oh God, don't ask me that. <laughs> you know, it's like, I can tell you my maybe favorite recent performance of one particular song. <laughs> but, you know, right? That in and of itself demonstrates to me that you're, you know, maybe an outsider, you know, insiders, we don't typically ask each other, like, what's your favorite album? Uh, because right. It's just already such a contentious question uh, and already has so much presuppositions that, yeah. So I've, I've actually tried to explore that, how certain questions, uh, answers to certain questions maybe constitute you as a member of the community or a community, an aesthetic community. So there's a language. I mean, you study language and linguistics. And so there's a language that we speak among, you know, the Dylan obsessed that is not shared outside of this community. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So what started your interest in Bob Dylan? What's your origin story? Right. Yeah. Um, it was it was nice reflecting on on this question when you sent it to me. My family is not into him. My parents weren't into him. So it's not as if I grew up uh, hearing him or his albums. Um, I knew of him, I think, in high school. But it wasn't until after high school with a person I was dating at the time who was into him and into his work. Uh, convinced me to go to Arkansas to see him live. Uh, and this was 2008. So it was around the time that Telltale Signs came out. They were heavily promoting it. Uh, I think we even bought the CD at the show uh, and listened to it in the car on the way home. Just fell in love with that album. That is still, if I were to answer what my favorite album, <laughs> there would be Telltale Signs uh, in terms of because the- Because it's your entry point album, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, and, you know, I wasn't even aware of many of the original songs that, you know, there's alternative takes in the album, but in particular, the live performances. So I really, for me, it was seeing him live uh, the following year. We then followed him around. Uh, I think it was a base, a ballpark tour. Um, oh, yeah. Is multiple dates in Texas. So we followed it during the summer. So we followed him around um, and the fan, the fan club online through his website offered early entry tickets. And so we got there, you know, we were able to get there early and get up close. And that was just this whole other experience, you know. And uh, so I fell in love with many of the songs like Spirit on the Water through their live, you know, live performances and seeing mm -hmm. him live. 
So for me, it was starting with live contemporary stuff and then eventually working my way back to, you know, the standards in the 60s and just being, con you know, continually just impressed and amazed at uh, the depth of, you know, his work and his art artistry. I love that that's your entry point, Telltale Signs, because uh, I know as a kid, my entry point was the lyrics. I, my dad gave me a book of the lyrics, and I've said this a million oh. times, um, and said, take this brother, may it serve you well, because he's an old hippie. Um, but my first, the first new, like album I remember listening to was Blood on the Tracks. And I think that there's a this beautiful advantage that younger Dylan fans have, Obviously, the first Dylan fans have the chronology. They're going, they're they're going through. They're experiencing the albums as they're created, so they're going through the creative process with Dylan. But younger fans, they they can enter at any point, and this, you know, many of us have said this. So you can go forwards and backwards, or you can just kind of, it's like a buffet. It's like yeah. the most wonderful buffet you could be at. I love that. So Absolutely. yeah, and. You have um since uh, I'm I'm jumping around because this is a normal um, aspect of conversation, but you do say on your website that you're a, a nomadic nerd, which is an aspirational goal for many of us, uh, mm -hmm. myself included, and that you follow Dylan on tours. You said so. How many times have you seen Dylan, and what tours have you seen? What's your favorite show or even performance within a show? Uh, yes. So I want to say I've a seen a lot. <laughs> yeah, too many times and not enough at the same time. Uh, and I don't have an exact count, but it's less than 100, more than 50. So somewhere in the 80s, I think. Um, more since the Rough and Rowdy Ways tour than before. Um, so yeah, I, I cribbed the nomadic ner nerd expression from a description of Frederick Nietzsche, one of my favorite mm -hmm. philosophers. Uh, by my other favorite philosopher Richard Rorty and I said that's that's mm -hmm. me um, I love traveling uh, when the pandemic hit I put most of my belongings in storage and sort of lived various places with friends or in hotels in some cases living out of my car more or less staying in you know physical places but everything I had was whatever could fit in my car including my cat <laughs> at the time um, and I've always just really been attracted to the life on the road uh, that you have when you follow him around um, where, you know, your biggest concern is like getting to the next show, right? It's just been a very meaningful part of my life in a way that I think I've lived, I've, I've called it sort of the good life is the good lives where you get to live this other life. You know, become this other person when I'm on tour that um, I don't get to, you know, be when I'm working and at home again with people who often don't understand uh, mm -hmm. obsession and all that sort of thing. So, and seeing people that I've seen, you know, th throughout the years on tour um, and the like. So, that's yeah, for me, been just the most probably rewarding aspect of uh, the fan fanhood. Uh, as for my favorite show, I feel like my answers are really idiosyncratic, um, and I maybe have a, a favorite show that's like the la of the last tour leg that I've seen. Um, after a certain point of seeing so many, they st do start to blend together as well. But um, this last summer, I really enjoyed Luca, Italy. <gasps> that's the show I wanted to go to, but my my housing fell through. Oh no! Yeah. yeah. That was, there were a couple of spots that were really difficult to uh, find places for. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and that was outdoor theater. There was a statue in the middle of the space. It just really, I think, contributed to the atmosphere of the show. Mm -hmm. 
and then idiosyncratically for me i got to stand uh in the back i couldn't find my seat because they take your phone away so you get this little sticker or this little piece of paper that has your i couldn't find mine so i ended up standing in the back with other people and we were standing and dancing and uh i thought the show itself of course the performances were really strong so it was this combination of the space people i was with and the show itself mm -hmm. that uh is for me my favorite one of of the tour <laughs> yeah well, you do. I mean, you said that you become a different person. And, you know, that's sort of like second life. It's very Bakhtinian, isn't it? It's almost like it's carnival-esque. Um, oh, yes. Can you share that experience? Because, I mean, I've seen Dylan shows, but I have never, you know, it's aspirational to follow him around, you know, which I will have to do probably in the next few years if I'm going to. But um, can you share with us, like, how is that? How is it like a carnival-esque experience that you're living like a second life? Yes, absolutely. Carnivalesque. I've used the same term. Also freak show. <laughs> I guess it's a freak show. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, it's, you know, yeah, traveling to different cities, seeing the different audiences and how mm -hmm. ways they're kind of always the same as well. There's the same, same, but different aspect to, uh, you know, even different countries, different parts of the world. Uh, you still see sort of the same sort of figures and roles people occupy. Yeah, the biggest, I guess, the you know, number one way to describe it is that your biggest concern is just getting to the next show. Uh, and right. you know, standing outside the show, milling about with people. Um, for me, I also like dressing up. And, you know, I also like teasing, I guess, other people that maybe don't aren't as well versed uh, in the shows. So now, you know, he starts, you know, on time. It's like 8 mm -hmm. p.m. on the mm -hmm. dot. And so people will be coming in late. And I, I, dubbed myself a clown and so i'll kind of sort of tease them sometimes mm -hmm. like oh this is mother of muses do you know this one you know <laughs> uh, it's clear sometimes that people just don't even know what they're in for um yeah uh, i so found that at shows too and like the, they're like they're mad that he doesn't play what they want him to play and even if he did it wouldn't be how they wanted to hear it it's not like it is on the the, the album that they want to hear he's not just you know performing that and they yeah they so they don't understand what seeing a dylan live performance is yeah so that's a lot of fun and uh i also like to refer to the front row seats that are very expensive um mm -hmm. and i think many years i'm not sure now because i don't or at least in the u.s like you can't see him very well from up front either because there's mm -hmm. like in the way in the piano so i call it smash and grab where it's just <laughs> get money from the suckers <laughs> um but yeah, there's this way in which sort of everyday life is suspended and it's kind of in the background and you're, yeah, you're doing these things. You wake up late sometimes, you just go to the show. That's that's your number one thing. After the show, everybody hangs out and maybe discusses it or, you know, maybe just uh, does other things. It depends. But yeah, mm -hmm. just sort of this other way of living uh, that in a community and living with the community, you know, the other freaks, the other weirdos uh, who are doing this sort of thing as well uh, that I yeah take to be this, again, like a very carnivalesque atmosphere and experience as close as maybe it can get <laughs> nowadays. That's awesome. So yeah, you, you were in Rome, but you told us the Luca show was, um, was maybe better for you, more enjoyable? But for idiosyncratic reasons, really. Gotcha. Like, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I felt like my answers to some of the questions when I was thinking about them is like probably reveals more about me than anything of like how, how sort of self-centered my evaluations are. Uh, but the Rome show was, oh, it was fantastic. Uh, I ended up getting seat a seat the day of because um, I wasn't totally sure I was going to go. Um, mm -hmm. And it was 
like stage right up on the balcony, but it ended up being almost parallel to his piano, if not a little bit behind and oh, cool. closer than the front row was. So I was mm -hmm. a little taken aback. I, I don't like being too close because I'm always a worry. One, I'm kind of just intimidated and anxious about it. But two, I was worried of cheering or clapping too much or making too much noise and distracting the band or being, you know, in some way being disrespectful. I'm always, always anxious about that. Again, as the clown sort of person, um, but the audience was really receptive, uh, which always, you know, adds, improves the show. Um, mm -hmm. Says were wonderful. The performance of Only a River just brought me to tears. It was it was just beautiful, heart wrenching. Uh, and then the follow up of Truckin, uh, totally unexpected. You know, when it started, yeah. I, this is a new uh, arrangement of I think it's Mother of Muses is the, <laughs> the next song, and I was like, oh my god. And then you know, as he starts the lyrics, I'm like, oh wow, you know. So that's just always so fun um and i got to hang Laura beforehand which was a lot of fun too yeah yeah she's wonderful yeah. i love that moment when they're tuning or like even if you know what the set list is and they're tuning you're like oh this is like you know it's just good there's there's something special about that moment of anticipation while they're they're getting ready to play the next song mm -hmm. and i can't imagine what you're like well this is an interesting arrangement but it's not yeah. the song you're expecting that's Absolutely, so cool yeah and then it's like oh wow another you know another surprise so yeah that was just a lot of fun I try not to have expectations you know just and right generally so let alone specifically in Dylan cases but yeah it's always fun and uh for these like, surprises to happen um and yeah turning to Tony and oh what's gonna happen you know and seeing everybody especially with only a river there I I really like the Bob Weir uh recording as well performance mm -hmm. Um, so the people around me, what is this? What is this? You know, trying to figure it yeah. out. I see people sort of creaning in to listen. Um, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, God, it's only a river. Ah. You know, so. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. So if this is his last tour, because there's chatter in the Dylan verse that, you know, there's an end date to the tour and this is going to be his last tour. He's going to retire. Do you give any credence? Is there any, do you think that rumor has any validity? And then, if it is, are there places that you haven't seen him that you want to see that you would like to? Like for me, I even though I grew up in New Jersey, I've never seen him at the Beacon. And so when he had now, I know that shot, you can't see her face because there's no video on this, but she, she was shocked, shocked. Yeah. Um, but I will be at the Beacon once they announce the Beacon shows in November. I'm very hopeful. But um, yeah, so do you think the rumor is valid or are there, and there, are there places that you like bucket list places you want to see him yeah so um i've actually i guess been operating under the assumption since the tour began with you know the promotional material saying 2021 mm -hmm. to 2024 i've been operating under the assumption that that would be the end that 2024 is going to be i guess the end um however i also thought when the pandemic hit i made peace with 2019 being the last year i would ever see shows so that's in part why I have kind of gone overboard with seeing more shows than ever before is because I've, I've been assuming that, yeah, it will. And, um, and every show now is just this gift because I thought we weren't going to, yeah. we might not get any more, you know? Um, 
I'm in a lot of debt now, but <laughs> I don't think I'll ever regret it, honestly, you know, at the end of the day. And so, yeah, uh, you know, of course, I would be happy if to be surprised that there, the show or the tour goes on or maybe there's a new iteration of the tour. I mm-hmm. think a Vegas residency like U2 is doing would be a lot of fun, although maybe yeah. cats would move to Las Vegas. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, I would like, I really like casino shows. I haven't seen him in Vegas. So I, I would, I would like to see him in Vegas. And I know he hasn't been to Alaska. So, and I haven't either. Um, so I would love, I think, to see him in Alaska to have an opportunity, an excuse to travel to Alaska. I guess it should be. Um, right. that's a lot of ways I'm using the shows now too is like an excuse to get out there and, and travel to places I otherwise wouldn't do. You know, I wouldn't get out. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that as well. That's wonderful. So we talked the other day, um, a group of us for the Dylan Taunt site about what post touring Dylan, what it will look like for us. And I think that you're in a, a really interesting position to answer this question and, you know, open up a dialogue in this way about how that will, you know, what will that will look like, but also kind of how your research interests kind of relate to Dylan and, you know, and your experiences with touring, because this is, I mean, you have such a wonderful, rich Dylan intellectual life, but also a practical experience with, you know, practical experiences with him that are just fascinating. Like you just like a really interesting person to talk with. So yeah, um, if this is the end, what do you think it will look like after he stops touring? And then, you know, how will that affect your work? Or do, does it, does that intersect at all? Yeah, I think um, the some of the, you know, Bobcats uh, at the Leon, there was a lot of people at the Leon tour, picture of us, I think there's like 25 or something, it's wonderful. But, uh, you know, we we're kind of talking about that, and like, how will we see each other? Like, what other, you know, we live all over the world, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so if, if there's no more tours, how will that happen? And, uh, one person, Raymond just, we'll find ways. Like he just yeah. you know, kind of not dismissed it, but you know, he was just like, we'll figure it out, you know? So that, right. that was comforting for me. Um, because of course, yeah, I have some anxiety about that of, uh, the community that I've, uh, grown to love and the people that I've uh, formed these relationships with that. Yeah. If we don't, if there's no tour dates, how the heck is that going to happen? May, yeah. um, some people who think like then will some of them will switch more to like the academic studies like Bob Dylan, uh, the world of Bob Dylan conference, right? Uh, which I will. Well, maybe you could edit this out if it's bad, but I didn't pay to register for it because the cost was the cost of two Dylan tickets. And I was like, no, I can't. <laughs> I'm paying $300. That's two tickets. To oh, the switch yard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Um, it was, you, you know, for me, there there is like a priority to seeing him live. I think that that trumps mostly everything else, um, mm-hmm. even my other acad- ac- academic pursuits. Um, uh, you know, if it comes into conflict with the Dylan show or a planned Dylan tour, I, I will choose the Dylan tour over over basically anything else. And so um, I guess I would have to re- rearrange my priorities in some ways with regard to that. Um but yeah, I I worked. I would like to. I think, and things I've considered doing is to um, help develop and sustain um, the community based uh, archive of you know the fans and the um, you know a lot of them collect like the posters and memorabilia. There's the people who record the shows and the ways in which they've they've done that uh, in the past and and now and now and um, I love the Bob Dylan Center but I felt that it was kind of missing that absent given how 
important the community and the you know the the folk sort of community that's grown around him is in sustaining you know his his um art, artistic value and and pop culture status i guess in some ways um i felt that that it was lacking and there should be maybe representation and, and more of a an archive or at least a space for this community's point the community's point of view of you know what we've kept or preserved or, and why people do it um so i think maybe one way to bridge that those two dimensions of me or two forms of my life between the practical and the, I really like that the practical and the academic the theoretical would be to try to um, develop some way that we can collect an archive from the community's perspective taking um, testimony from people um, like Sue and Al I don't know if you know them they call mm -hmm. it they in a lot of the set lists yeah um, so they're you know sort of uh, pillars in the in the community uh and <laughs> mm -hmm. so you know, Sue is Canadian right yes oh yeah and, yeah okay yeah that's yeah uh, yes so um yeah she's one who thinks like no we shouldn't be talking about him you should be following him and then once mm -hmm. he's done touring then we'll start talking about him you know and then we'll um so yeah so I think soliciting testimony and inter um, points of view from them and as well as sort of the literal material and archival pieces and developing sustaining a the the fan based or community centered archive um that would be something or that is something I think is valuable and I think when the tour ends I could dedicate a lot of my time um to doing that so when the tour ends you'll start talking to people about Dylan as as Sue says <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> I wonder too, because you are interested in language and how people use language. And, you know, if you had an oral history from those folks per se, that you could then kind of figure out, you know, or, or isolate what the, the, the language is within the Dylan community and how that sustains, you know, that, what you're saying, the folk community of Dylan and his pop culture status and whatnot. That would be a fascinating project. Absolutely. Yeah. And it, like you could think of like the rituals and the traditions. Right. Uh, yeah. That I think help constitute the community as, as a genuine thing. And in, in, in addition to the language and terms like bobcats, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, yeah. of a lot of these terms and, and what we take for granted as agreed upon by everyone. Um, yeah. So using it as a, as a genuine, you know, social phenomenon that we can learn about, uh, learn about deep things of language and, and social norms and so on. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm championing. I, I'm, I'm rooting for that. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, good. You can help me then. <laughs> you know, actually, um, Rebecca Slayman is interested in fan culture and she would be a great person. I would love to too, but I'm just saying that's something that's, that's heavily, um, you know, her, her interest is, is heavily associated with that. That's Absolutely. fantastic. Oh, uh, so how, so, you work with humor and Twain's language and humor. And so how does that intersect? Because we know Dylan is funny. You know, <laughs> I don't know if people, I mean, I don't know if you saw Harry Hewitt's uh, presentation in Tulsa. He did um, a presentation on Dylan and humor. But will you explain how Dylan is funny? And I, I put how in cat, like how is he funny to people listening? Yeah, um, I guess you edit this out. We're part of the conversation. I was... The, the main uh, panel I wanted to see was the one on humor, but I was recovering from the night before still, so I was unable to make it. Do we it. need to edit that out? <laughs> okay. 
it's authentic. <laughs> yeah, so I was unfortunately uh, still recovering, so I was not able to make it to the 1 p.m. session <laughs> on humor. So I, I'm actually, I was I was very disappointed in myself uh, for that because I was really excited uh, to to hear about that because I, I was just totally on board with, I think one of the papers was even called Dylan is Humorous, and I'm like, yes, mm -hmm. just totally agree with that. Um, I know there are bootlegs. I'm sure we could get you one. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's great. I would love that. Um, in fact, I should just follow up on emails, but I'm, I'm terrible about all that. Right. Dylan is humorous. One of the ways in which you could see Dylan as using humor as a tool in the way that I think of it, a tool for manipulating, dismissing, challenging social norms is his um, answers to questions by interviews and in press conferences, like in the 60s, mm -hmm. when, you know, the interview, the interviewer will ask him something that he found to be ridiculous uh, mm -hmm. that he would just answer, you know, in, in a humorous way. And so in, instead of, you know, not answering it or attempting to answer it, maybe inauthentically, he used humor to to challenge it and to dismiss it. And I mm -hmm. think that still carries on to, uh, you know, today, contemporary times and contemporary work and resisting the norms and the conventions that are put upon him in virtue of him being a public figure. So I think also with his autobiographical works, which I'm probably the most interested in, but also in relation to Mark Twain, I think, uh, it's his both of theirs penchant for tall tales or what's called tall tales. So sort mm -hmm. of exaggerating the truth, alighting the truth, however it would be um, that I think is best represented. And most recently his Rolling Thunder Review documentary and Bob Dylan story. Yes. With, uh, Martin Scorsese. Yeah. I'm, I could just talk all day about that. Um, I'm very fascinated by that work. Um and how it was presented and how it's sort of something that I think might be aimed toward this community, the people in the know. Um, right. You don't know enough about his background. You start watching it. You, you know, you won't think any differently. But if you if you know enough, you'll be like, wait a minute. That's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> when, it. Like, what? when did you know it was a put on? Because I mean, like. Yeah, about 20, 20, 30 minutes in, I started I just started laughing. I was like, this isn't true. <laughs> like, <laughs> What is going on here? You know, uh, I was watching it with my mom at the time who, yeah, she, she doesn't know anything. So it was at the, at the same time that I was like, wait a minute. I understood like she would never, she would just keep watching it and not think twice because uh, right. she didn't know enough. And so I was just immediately like, what is he doing? What is going on here? Um, and I, I found it very funny. Uh, but of course, yeah. like, you know, you see the mainstream, the critical reception of it. Many people were annoyed or they felt like, he, you know, they were duped. And so this interesting question yes. is humor and lying uh, or question I think is interesting, at least. Yeah. But, and it's interesting because when I started to question it, when it makes, when they broke up the word review to like a review and I was like, is this like and we're viewing it in a different way? It's just it's it's apocryphal. He's just telling us a different tale. And then the stuff about nixon and the bicentennial and i was like nixon wasn't president during the bicentennial and so I, I was that deep in my question but yeah probably 20 or 30 minutes in i was like oh this is a complete farce this is fantastic and i think people don't question they feel more offended that they fell for it than they do yeah. questioning why he's doing it you know why he's presenting that and that to me is fascinating too absolutely I hope you work on that yeah like the jokes on them sort of thing right um, yeah, 
It reminds me of the the Playboy of the Western World riots, the Singh riots in 1907, where when the people realized that he was making fun of them, they rioted, and because they realized that they were the butt of the joke, and uh, they were laughing at first, and then they realized, oh wait a minute, he's you know he's he, this is aimed at us, but it wasn't in Rolling Thunder review. It wasn't aimed at us. He was just having fun with us, and if you were on board, you went along with it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I and I like that it can in many ways raise questions about like why why are we watching it in the first place? What's the point? Right. Um, try, if you want to learn, you know, what happened during that time, you can just Google it. You know, there's tons of you know uh, right. testimonial and uh, you know historical pieces on that time period and that tour and documentary and and all mm -hmm. that. So uh, I liked it as a way for him to be playful and to do something different than just rehash right. history that's available to anyone who's really interested in it. Right. So would you consider um, looking at the other Scorsese, um, No Direction Home, as part of that? I mean, he's, he's definitely found a, a willing artistic partner, creative partner with Scorsese um, in in this venture, in film ventures. So would you, in terms of the autobiographical stuff, do you yeah. find any humor there? that, Or do you think he's being authentic in that? I think that one is more authentic. And mm -hmm. I think that plays into the expectations of the Rolling Thunder Review documentary, where yeah. maybe it wouldn't have been as effective if you know we were already assuming it to be something like a farce or a joke. Whereas right. because he had previously done No Direction Home, everyone's <laughs> expecting to consume this one mm -hmm. in the same ways. But nope, you know, it's that person is dead, as he says in the beginning of it, right? Wasn't even born mm -hmm. yet. Right. Uh, continually reborn so I, I really something I appreciate just generally about right his art his artistic output is the ability you know don't look back um right this ability to you know I say reinvent himself that's you know very cliched but this yeah doing something different at the same time he's still working with uh, the same people same person yeah he's, he's constantly in creation or the state of creation and becoming and I love that too in the and in, in the Scorsese the no direction home he says that the artist has to be can never be at a place where they've arrived somewhere mm -hmm. and i i love that because he's telling you so much about his own process in that one simple line yeah absolutely so what are you currently working on um with regard to dylan well i know you're working on your dissertation <laughs> <laughs> so you can um if you want to tell us about that or in regard to dylan you can you know talk about um, anything so uh, I would I'm currently one thing I'm currently working on uh, is a chapter actually for a collection on Taylor Swift and the philosophy of re-recording. Oh, that's uh, awesome. Where again, given my emphasis on language, I'm interested in how proper name when you become a public figure, how your proper name and your likeness, your name and your likeness, no longer strictly belong to you. You don't have right. special control or authority over your likeness and your name anymore. Uh, becomes what I'm calling this zombie version of yourself where in Taylor Swift's case, her own works were sold and bought with, uh, you know, against her will or without her consent. Mm -hmm. And so she's re-recording her own works in order to create new zombie versions that will economically compete with her original recordings. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that connects back to Dylan and Prince as well. The artist Prince who changed yeah. his symbol. Uh, in this way that uh, people who are artists who become public figures have to, in a way, battle or constantly sort of engage with this public persona, this other version of them that you know, people mm -hmm. either 
read into or exploits. Um, parody, I think in, you know, for in the US context, we have parody as a legally protected form of political crit- criticism and free mm-hmm. speech. And so that's one area where you can see that public figures don't have special uh, authority over how their likeness is used and can be used in ways that might go against what they want or their interests. Yeah. Um, I think Dylan also has been d- engaging with this throughout his, throughout his, uh, career and tenure um, as a public persona and going back to the humor stuff and the Rolling Thunder review documentary, these are ways in which he's able to both fulfill in some ways his um, obligations to audience and fans at the same time, he's not contained or constrained by those expectations and norms again, to like give his testimony or confess what he really thinks about, you know, his past experiences or in the case of philosophy of modern time, you know, giving us what he really thinks about modern songs Mm -hmm. or sorry, philosophy of modern songs. (laughs) Um, I I knew what you meant. (laughs) (laughs) I think I did that during my talk too, for whatever reason, my brain wants to answer modern times. That's what it is. (laughs) Yeah. You want to insert his album there. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, well, I'm looking forward to that. That'll be interesting because I think it, you there's a really lovely point there about, you know, that public persona or the image of someone is just, it's so superficial and in American culture, we sort of, you know, we take that for granted. And we, um, Ray Padgett gave a talk last night about on his book through the Bob Dylan Center. And you know, I don't know if you've read his book, but he did interviews with Bob Dylan's band members. And one of the questions was like, did this unlock the enigma that is Bob Dylan? Oh, probably, you know, and I was sitting there like, are we ever going to? But um, but it, it was his answer was so interesting because it, he said it really did humanize Dylan because you realize that, you know, he's just a guy, like he's someone's boss and he's, you know, a member of the band. And there was a lovely story that he told, um, or they played the audio of uh, Winston Watson talking about his little girl with Dylan and how Dylan likes children because they don't look at him like Bob Dylan. And it's just, you know, that idea that there's a lack of humanity from that zombie person. I'm I'm looking forward to reading work on that quite a bit. That would be interesting. So what other music do you listen to? Taylor Swift, obviously. <laughs> that that question too. And how does it relate to music? How, how does it relate to Dylan? Uh, I will say I've only recently begun listening to Taylor Swift. I agreed to do this chapter before I really knew anything about her. Okay. But I, now I, lis- I do ris- listen to many of her songs pretty regularly. Um, and Spotify informed me I was in like the top 13% of Taylor Swift listeners, which okay. I, was, oh, no, I was kind of mortified. <laughs> I didn't listen to her that much. <laughs> but I'll tell you, my friend who is a huge Dylan fan, her daughter loves Taylor Swift and she recommended that I listen to Taylor Swift. And then when you have a six-year-old niece, you it's I think it's just a prerequisite. You have to listen to Taylor Swift. <laughs> But I'm not in the top 13%. That, that's yeah. admirable. <laughs> so what else do you listen to? Um, yeah, I actually, <laughs> what I listen to besides Dylan is rather, it, um, I guess, strange compared to Dylan. Uh, it would mostly be ambient music and psychedelic music. Um, All so right. If anything, closer to Murder Most Foul, the sort of vibe of Murder Most Foul, than um, a lot of his more, I guess, blues and rock and roll music. Okay. Uh, so yeah, <laughs> when I read that question, I was like, well, I guess 
technically uh it's it's not related to dylan very much at all um, other than uh blues music and things that he references i've always appreciated using his music as a as a way an insight into older traditions folk traditions and mm-hmm. blues traditions so i do really enjoy uh especially when i find when i'm just happen to be listening to a song and i real and i hear um you know, a line that he used, or I can recognize a melody is familiar. I've always really appreciated that yeah. aspect of his work. Um, That's yeah. great. There's a really, as a as a native Houstonian, there's a really cool part of the blues genealogy that goes through Houston via Peacock Records. Um, and I would love to work on a piece on that, but there, I think it's it's a little bit of a story that's missing there. So, um, but yeah, the blue stuff is it's just good stuff. Um, yeah, and I like to I like to I love that stuff too. But you and you can hear, you know, like I love that when you when you hear the, um, you know, a line or a lick or something like that. Like you said, that's that's lovely. absolutely. Yeah, I, recently somebody said something about you know if they hear them from Houston, say, oh, if you ever go to Houston, uh, and somebody said they didn't like that song, and I was like, well, I love that song. <laughs> Maybe it's because I've been, maybe I'm you know not a I'm a biased a listener in that sense because um you know I'm from Houston but also that comes from a Lead Belly song mm-hmm. um, so I always appreciated that uh, yeah right. that connection as well and yeah well <laughs> you know I do love Jersey Girl but not the Bruce version <laughs> so what is your favorite Dylan memory I mean it's going to be hard to pick because you've seen him so many times but good grief. Um, yes. And, and I, again, I kind of am biased towards more recent stuff just because of pressure in my memory. Um, but last summer I, uh, followed him through many of the California shows. Um, mm-hmm. and at the Oak one of, I, I had originally only planned to see like a handful of shows. Um, but, uh, unfortunately slash fortunately my car was broken into in the Oakland show right outside okay. the theater too. Uh, fortunately I didn't lose my laptop and my research or anything like that. All in all, it, it could have been much worse, of course. Um, but, uh, I ended up putting my car, leaving my car at a, uh, airport parking lot and jumping in a van with a an actual dead, veritable deadhead and following him around for my, many more shows than I had planned to. And, mm-hmm. um, experiencing what I think was probably the closest to sort of the deadhead experience. Yeah. If, you know, my biggest regret is not being born <laughs> early enough to be a deadhead. Right. <laughs> uh, but born in time to be, you know, a bobcat. And so um, that was just seeing him multiple times at the L.A. shows and the Oakland shows. And that was when he played Friend of the Devil, which was you know, unexpected mm-hmm. and just a lot of fun. Um, that for, and, you know, sort of abandoning my car and abandoning, again, this sort of normal way of living and embracing this other this other life. Um, mm-hmm. was just yeah really meaningful uh, to me so definitely the last and a lot of the shows are really a lot of fun too um, as well they're, I think they're a little maybe rougher possibly lots of different reasons why but you know the European shows in a lot of ways were kind of more polished That's so the, I think the California shows were just a little more rougher a little sort of more spontaneous back to how I remember when I would follow him at GA when he had GA shows and it would be a little more rough and rowdy so to speak right uh, right so yeah that that whole uh, experience to me was it was just yeah really meaningful um, and some really great shows as well <laughs> I have a friend who um who was a deadhead he passed away in two, 2008 but um yeah he followed Dylan around a lot as well <laughs> 
And um, he, some of his, his stories from the road are fantastic. I wish I had an oral history of that stuff, but he had a collection of bootlegs, Bob bootlegs that he shared with me and dead. I mean, his, he just hard drive upon hard drive of bootlegs that were impressive. And so, yeah, that whole community of deadheads was just loving and wonderful and, and definitely um, just, it's sad that if the dead, you know, if they've stopped touring, then it's sad for real this time. But you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's yeah. it's just such a lovely community that it's sad it's it's gone. And I don't know that there are other bands that will have that same, you know, fandom or encourage that. Exactly, exactly. It's a way of life in many, you know, yeah. you know, so yeah, I, I, I could not agree more. And I uh, sort of soundbite I've always used is all my best friends are deadheads. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> you know, somehow I just always seem to click and then it'll come out, you know, I'm clicking with somebody either on tour, mm-hmm. or sometimes just people I've met randomly, and then it turns out they're deadhead. And it's like, yep, of course. Right. You know, um, it's just uh, almost like a personality type that yeah, and a community, of course. I wonder too, and we can edit this out or not, but because um, I don't think that it's it's relevant to our conversation. But when Jerry died, Carrie was really affected by it, um, and I didn't know him then. But I just he was written up in the Houston Chronicle that he walked out of his job at the alley and, and wasn't heard from for a little while. Um, and I wonder if he was not only mourning, mourning Jerry, which was a significant loss, but also what you were saying about the community of folks who tour with Dylan and how will you see each other afterwards and there's that loss as well that you know those people are grieving with you but you're also grieving the loss of being able to have that nomadic existence with them once that ends yeah yeah grieving a version of you that is manifested when you're doing when you're engaged in that or uh doing that right yeah, I, I I became good friends with someone, a, a, a deadhead and Dylan, a Bobcat, uh, this mm-hmm. last hand tour. And uh, she was over, uh, I guess, stage left. And I said something like, oh, that's a pretty good scene. She's like, yeah, that's Jerry's side. And oh. I said, yeah, I thought that was really sweet. Still orients mm-hmm. you know, her concert experience, I think, in many ways around right. that. So, yeah, that is genuinely my biggest, biggest regret is that I wasn't able to do that because I know I would have been right alongside all those other deadhead people. Um, mm-hmm. And I do I do think um, Jerry's playing is very sort of proto ambient in many ways. So I, I, I enjoy listening to recordings um, mm-hmm. and performances because it strikes my sort of interest in that more meandering uh, ambient type music. That's wonderful. Yeah, I saw them once and Dylan opened for them. <laughs> That's, so it was, yeah, it was in 1995, two months before Jerry died. And mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, wow. I was very fortunate. Yeah. I actually had a really cool article that was on the um, front page of Expecting Rain, maybe mm-hmm. earlier this year, that was comparing Jerry to as a comedian, as a humorist, and drawing mm-hmm. on a lot of quotes um, of him and things and saying that the best way to understand what he was doing is something akin to a joke or something humor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. rather than, you know serious so maybe yeah. you would appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> right so is there anything else you'd like to share this has been so wonderful i've enjoyed talking with you it's been a lot of fun i think we should hang out sometime uh, we definitely should yeah absolutely yeah i'm so glad that there's another dylan person in houston that i can you know i can hang out with yes but anything else you have the last word 
Oh no. <laughs> Too much pressure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm hoping for dates to come out. Like <laughs> I know, I know. Ray Padgett posted yesterday tour dates released, but it was just he was announced. I know I did the same thing. I I grabbed I was like oh, and then he was it was just an advertisement for his talk last night and I said that was me man yeah, cool. <laughs> I actually was really hoping they would be released today and that would be one thing we could like celebrate on our I know me I too know. they're coming <laughs> they are all right I'm gonna stop recording thank you for listening to the Dylan Tons podcast be sure to subscribe to have the Dillentons sent directly to your inbox. And share the Dillentons on social media.